0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you, people, I, uh, so I fell asleep on the couch last night and then Joanne went upstairs and she always does it. She don't wake me up because I, I I don't sleep well. When I fall asleep, it's a good sleep. So I end up waking up at 1.30 and it's, you ever have that kind of sleep where you wake up and I look at the clock and it says 1.30? And I think it's 1.30 the next day. And I'm going, oh my God, I'm, I've lost, I'm, I'm missing my show. So I start freaking out and because it's been so hot in Burbank, we keep the windows closed during the day. So they're blind, so I can't tell if it's day or night. So I finally get up and go upstairs. And the only thing worse than that is when I don't, because she sleeps with the TV off. I used to always fall asleep with the TV on. And you, what I used to hate was when I'd fall asleep with the TV on and you're watching a TV show. and like Lawn & Order SVU, which is on all the time in USA. And you don't know how it ends. But you sort of know how it ends. Because it's like, I used to watch Miami Vice when I was a kid. Love that show. And I remember like one episode, Tubbs. Tubbs got kidnapped. And you're thinking, is Tubbs going to live? And then you're thinking, wait a second. I just read in TV Guide that the show has been renewed for two seasons. So you know Tubbs is going to live. So I think they should change TV right now. I think they should do. like, Remember the show Starsky and Hutch? If you guys don't remember, great, great, great drama. Cop drama when I was younger. David Soule and Paul Michael Glazier. I think here's what they should do. Like, Let's say you have Starsky and Hutch. It's on for like two episodes. And then Hutch dies. And you bring a guy like McAllister. And then the next episode... Starsky dies. So you bring your name Baines. So by the end of the season, he show's like Baines and McAllister. <laughs> I think that's what we should do. But that's just me. But anyway, we have a great show today. We're talking TV, and this guy, this guy, you know, pretty impressive. This guy was written for the Daily News when he was still in college. Uh, we have we have the guest, uh, AJ Benza. How you doing, AJ? Hey, how are you, man? Good to see you. Know, we were talking about pizza before. Oh,
1: uh, well, you're right near a pizza place here. Um, I don't know if you are kind of Dino's, yeah. but you know, I'm a New Yorker, you know, and we have the best pizza. Jersey has the best pizza. There are There are cities known for certain things, and I don't care what anybody tells me. I've yet to eat a great pie in L.A. I know there are some places that are decent, that are good, but there's not a place that I have to get back to. There really isn't. But the place nearby your your studio, it's good. It really is good. Now, how about Italian food? Another difficult thing to do, you got to find joints. You know, you got to find that Medeo's isn't bad. Uh, Listen, I spent 10 years every night at a restaurant called Ago in West Hollywood, which, uh, you know, it's not cheap. But I was making TV money, and you couldn't stop me. I was there every night. It was just a great, the ambiance. Look, it's all New Yorkers. De Niro owns a piece. Harvey Weinstein owns a piece. All these New York guys own a piece. So when you go in there, you see a lot of New Yorkers that are hanging out in L.A. So that's why I used to go there. But not easy finding great. L.A.'s
0: got great food, but strictly great Italian I'm still searching. It's been 18 years. That's, yeah, my girlfriend's Italian, yeah. so it's, I mean, she's from New Jersey. Yeah. It's funny. Actually, you're Italian. No, yeah. I'll tell you what yeah. I did. I did one. I, I, I grew up in New Jersey. I grew mm-hmm. up in a Jewish neighborhood, mm-hmm. but I wasn't Jewish, but I, I grew up with a Jewish customs. Yeah,
1: I could see you took the, uh, you have that Jewish kind of, like, you're complaining about
0: TV shows. Right. That's, a, I, I get that <laughs> completely. But I did that at Christmas Eve two years ago at a place called Nunzios in Collingswood, New Jersey. Uh, the the fish, the Feast of the Seven Fishes?
1: Oh, but that's New Year, Christmas Eve. We is, do that every year. Is that that's, amazing? Oh, it's, it's the best. It's the best thing ever. That's the best holiday. Christmas Eve, I always go back to New York with my sister and my, the rest of my family. It's just, you know, seafood. You have to like seafood. And if you do, it just doesn't stop. I mean, your, your own lobster, pasta with crab sauce and big giant crab claws. And there's a lobster. There's shrimp scampi. There's the, uh, octopus salad, which doesn't sound good, but it's
0: amazing. It goes on and on forever. So now, now you grew up in New York, mm-hmm. and now as a kid, I know because you went to college for journalism. As a kid, yeah. were you fascinated with journalism? I mean, what did you do as a kid? How did you go into that? How did you branch down that road?
1: <clears throat> Honestly, I, I, I wanted to do something. Uh, how can I say this? We all wanted to play uh, for the Yankees or the Knicks. I mean, th- that got shot down pretty quickly when I was in high school. But uh, in a creative writing class, I, uh, I wrote a story for a teacher that no one liked, Mrs. Camholtz, And we had to write a, a short story. And we had to read it aloud. And when I did some corny story about hitting a home run for my grandpa during a stickball game, and then I run to the hospital to tell him I hit a home run, and he dies. And about six girls cried. So I said, wow, I like the way this feels. I got girls crying, you know? And basically, if you can get into a field with them, any kind of field that makes the girls cry, the girls like you, go in that field. You'll have a good time. So that's really where I said, I like to I like to write more. And... uh that turned into I'll go to college for a communications degree, whether it was radio or writing. I didn't know. And then I started um, doing little little high school sports stories for local papers in Long Island. Then I got to do some part-time stuff at Newsday on the high school desk. Before long, I was uh, working 40, 50 hours a week at Newsday writing high school and college stuff. And,
0: so, you, so you were writing for Newsday. You were writing in the
1: sports department. Yeah. Okay,
0: so you started in sports,
1: covering high school sports, college sports, and then uh, suddenly I was there for about. You know, there was this thing back in the '80s. Uh, it was tough to be a white guy because a white guy, even if you had the, the ability and you met the requirements, you were flat out told you're not going to be hired as a as a full time reporter. It's got to go to a, a female or a black black guy. They said it flat out to us, so there was no chance. So a number of us hung in there. And when I tell you the names of the guys who hung in there and made it, it's pretty astonishing. Tom Verducci, Wally Matthews, who became a tremendous, still is a tremendous writer, was president of the Boxing Association, uh, Boxing Writers Association. Uh, Michael Silver, who writes for NFL Network, Marofa Sports Illustrated. A bunch of us stuck it out in New York. So I was at Newsday, and uh, a woman named Linda Stacy, who wrote a gossip column for for New York Newsday. I gave her some tips because I just got divorced from my first wife. It was 1990 or so. I saw some movie stars at a club. I actually saw Cindy Crawford making out with another girl, and I couldn't believe my eyes. And I gave Linda Stacey this tip, and she said, look, I'm about to leave for the Daily News. They want to hire me as a gossip columnist. You want to come along? She said, you know, you're young. You go out every night. You could basically cover the nightclubs. And I thought, this is great. So that was my entree into journalism. Outside of writing high school sports, the next gig was being a gossip columnist. Linda then quit two years in. And for the next six years, it was my column with another fellow named Michael Lewittis. And I mean, I had a, I was the king of the city. I had a gossip column with the New York Daily News for six years. And I mean, there wasn't a person I didn't meet, a club
0: I didn't go to, a restaurant I didn't eat for free at. I mean, it was insane. Now, when you met people, were they sometimes worried what was going on because they knew I mean, basically, it's like anything. If, if you're like, and you're in school, and the the kid who's the safety, who who's not the cool safety, who tells everyone yeah. and tattles on everybody, was it? Did people worry when they meet you because they said, you know, if, if I don't mind my p's and q's? Yeah, there's both. There's the ass kissers and there's the people who are afraid of you. But
1: uh, I, I I you know the difference with me was I I didn't march into a restaurant or a nightclub under a certain pretense. When I was doing gossip. It's so different now with the, with TMZ and the proliferation of so many gossip websites. Back in the day, you know, the New York Post had page 6, the Daily News had my column. There was Liz Smith, Cindy Adams, Michael Musto for the Village Voice. You were either gay, an older woman, or a very highly educated guy that went to journalism school or went to Columbia Journal. Nobody came from the streets like myself who did gossip. So I stood out. And because of that I I got a lot I gained a lot of entree into clubs that uh other folks didn't go to. And I was uh, kind of allowed in to certain tight rooms and, and, and clubs at three, four o'clock in the morning because I was, quote unquote, the cool guy. You know, Liz Smith wasn't going to go into a nightclub. Before. But, you know, we all had different purposes. And my purpose was to get next to celebrities and, and, and turn on the reader to what that felt like, to, to be in the room with those, those people. Very intoxicating. So you did that for six years? Yeah,
0: about six years. And now I know you started getting on TV shows and stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, it was a cottage industry. Then when, you, when you're when you writing gossip and for the news during the 90s, you've got the O.J. Simpson trial. You've got the Menendez murder case. You've got uh, Michael Jackson beginning his molestation or, or did he molest a child sort of thing. These are all stories we broke or stories we heavily contribute to. So there was a... There was Susan Smith who drove her kids in the lake and killed. Them. There was John Wayne Bobbitt and Lorena Bobbitt. I mean, there was a, a there was a amazing stories that were going on that we were all at front and center for. So I I'd, I'd be at the news writing my column, and hard copy would come in to interview me. Inside Edition would interview me. Geraldo Show. I mean, I'm I'm missing about six other shows, but there was so many of that. Uh, and as a matter of fact, Bill O'Reilly was the host of Inside Edition.
0: Right, that's how he. And O'Reilly
1: used to call me. He hated gossip. And he wanted to do hard-hitting stuff, which is what he does now. He's great at it, but he used to be, Benzo, what do you got, Benzo? What do you got? And I'd say, well, Naomi Campbell threw a phone at somebody. I don't want that crap. Give me something good, Benzo. You know, he hated that, but he did it for a while, and obviously we saw where his career went. But, yeah, man, and, and you know, I just basically would turn my chair, <clears throat> excuse me, and suddenly, like, you know, I'd made my very, uh, very good salary at the news, then i turned my chair to the right, and a hard copy would give me $1,000 to talk for 30 seconds. Inside Edition would do the same thing. Then the E! channel uh, decides to come up with a show called The Gossip Show, which really was the first TMZ, where it was a bunch of uh, authors, a bunch of uh, gossip columnists or music reviewers. It grew and grew. But basically, they brought a camera and a microphone into into our offices, and we talked for about two or three minutes straight about gossip items. And I was on every night, every day. That went on for two or three years. And after that, uh, I was on E's radar and somebody pitched a show about a guy that's kind of fish out of water, a New York guy who's like a tabloid guy that comes to L.A. and kind of investigates all the deaths and mysterious scandals of celebrities. And they, they, they love the idea of me hosting this show called Mysteries and Scandals. And I went from being fired by the Daily News uh, to having a TV show in a minute. Why'd you get fired? Uh, Pete Hamill, who was my idol... Uh, I mean, just one of the best writers I've ever. He's just amazing. Uh, he was the editor in chief, and Pete was a fit, was a fist fighting, womanizing, tough guy. Well, he wasn't like that anymore. He, you know, he really changed his ways and didn't like that sort of lifestyle anymore. And that was my lifestyle: sex, drugs, rock and roll. Pete hated gossip. He hated it. And one day he said, "Look, man, I, you know, I could I could hire five reporters to cover the." The, the the new immigrants of Manhattan for what I'm paying you, and I said, well, I'm not going to write about the new immigrants coming into New York. It doesn't interest me. That's what Pete loves. Pete loves the evolution of New York. So he he fired me, and I said, I could tell you, you never fired anybody. He said, how can you tell? I said, you're terrible at it. <laughs> and then we, you know, he fired me, and uh, which was horrible. It could, it was really painful. But he said, you'll be fine. You know, you'll you'll get off your ass and you'll do well. And uh, six months later, they fired him uh and now oh my god what the daily news is going through now uh, i don't know if you know these names but there are giants at the daily news that are just being let go the, the industry is just about dead it's huffing its last breath well, it,
0: it's weird it's also you know sad. that happens across the board like in philadelphia you know i grew sure. up watching channel six or channel three but i just you know i just noticed i read something where like these people who were with the station for like 20 years yeah. are gone and you're like wait a second you know and the funny thing is you know out here it's different because there's all the different stations. But yeah. When you live in a city like Philadelphia, the Philadelphia area, you know 3, 6, and 10. You've been watching that Absolutely. forever. You don't watch CNN for your news. No, you watch, no. you know, you're, if you're in South Philadelphia, you're not watching that. You go that. to your familiar face yeah, that you and, see every night. And these people yeah. start disappearing, and it really, it, it hurts the it, business, it, because it, it's a matter of, you know, I mean, I, I used to read the Philadelphia Daily News, I don't know, but there was a guy named Stu Bykovsky, still around. Sure. You know, if he was gone, you'd be like, well, wait a second. What well, L- I mean, look,
1: look, I mean, Jimmy Breslin was the guy that turned me on to, to writing journalism, mm-hmm. and... and uh, but yeah, you know, Mike Lupica, a big sports writer, he's going to be leaving. Jim Farber was a music critic; he's gone. Wayne uh, Philip Bondi was a huge sports writer. Guys, we grew up with, guys that read, we read about our championship teams on, and they're all gone. The newspaper industry's dead. But now you've got to go online to read about these people, and it's just not as fun. I like to get my fingers dirty. I love the high of walking to work in the city. And it didn't matter if it was a 40-block walk. It, it was work. Try walking 40 blocks in L.A. You'll, you'll kill yourself after right. 10 blocks. But in New York, it was wonderful. You get to look at the newsstands to see, I sound old now, but you'd see which stack of papers was higher. If on the way to work, the post stack was lower than the news, you knew there was going to be hell to pay at work where you got to get that stack lower and sell more papers. You could see what part of the city liked your, your column better. You go on the subway, they're opening the page up to your column it was a it was a high that I've never achieved again, and I don't think I'll ever have again in my life. I miss it terribly. The newspaper business is just so great. It was so great a time. Now, when you were writing
0: gossip, did anyone ever get into your face? Did oh, sure. Did you, yeah. mean, who were, did you have any altercations with <clears throat> anybody? Yeah, I did. I mean, I've gotten knocked out. I had my car set on fire. I had... I mean,
1: I had... <clears throat> excuse me. I mean, I wrote a lot. My column was not only about movie stars, but it was about mafiosa. It was anything I thought was interesting. And I had the mafia... Yeah, you know, look, if they wanted to really hurt me, they would have. But I was a journalist, so they took it easy on me. But uh, I got knocked out by a Hells Angel named Chuck Zito, who was a very famous Hells Angel who didn't like what was what somebody thought I said. But They misquoted me. But you, it's hard to explain to people out here. When you live in New York, there's a certain set of rules. When you live around mafiosa and you live around tough guys in the street and you're Italian, I, I can't explain it. I'm not saying it's better or worse. It just is what it is. There's certain rules. That we have to abide by. And there's street rules. And if you know you're going to get a beaten, you got to go get a beaten. And I knew I was going to get one. So I showed up to the club. I, I, can, I consulted with my tough guy friends and they said, you got to go and get it. You got to get shot. You got to get punched in the face. You got it. And he did. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm sorry. And, um, but yeah, in terms of a celebrity confronting me, no. I mean, they've gotten angry at me, but celebrities don't tend to get physical. Uh, they knew better. But, you know, I mean, I've had guys like Bruce Willis get angry at me. Um, sliced Stallone didn't get mad at me. As a matter of fact, I was the kind of writer where I really wanted a pocket full of favors more. I mean, I could have broken stories that that really would have hurt people's careers. And that's not what I wanted to do. I didn't want to get in people's bedrooms. That's not my business. And I knew, I knew a ton of those stories. But if you let the celebrity know, you know. And if you had an ulterior motive like I did, which was to come to L.A. and maybe make some movies or make some TV shows, then maybe that works out in your favor one day. So one example of Sylvester Stallone had an issue uh, early on in his relationship that some chick was claiming that she was pregnant by him. Who knows? And it was kind of during a period where he was on a break with his soon-to-become wife. He called me out to Florida. I, I went to see him at his house. It was surreal. You know, big mansion in Miami. And, uh, you know, the guy's talking to me. He's showing me where he writes his, his movies. He's showing me the when you're w- When you're with a guy in his backyard has a statue of Rambo and a statue of Rocky in bronze. <laughs> I'm like, why are you still trying? You did it, you know. But this is like 1995. And uh, Stallone's name, as big as it is now, it wasn't big in 95. He was in trouble. People weren't putting him in films. He was almost a laughing stock. And I love him to death, but that's what he was. So anyhow, he uh, I helped him out uh, by doing a few things, orchestrating a few things in a column or two. and fast forward to 1990, uh, to 2000, whatever, for six or seven, they're making Rocky six and my manager calls and says, uh, they want you to read for Rocky." Said, I said, Rocky Six, they're making another one." And I went in Redford. I met Sly again and he said, "Hey, remember that day we hung out in Miami. I said, "Yeah, he goes, you want to make this movie with me?" I said, "Sure." And there I was, cast. The next minute, he's, he was actually cutting my hair for the role. He's very hands-on. And I worked three weeks with him. I still talk to him to this day. I wrote something for him that he, that he says he wants to produce. So you just you just don't know. I tried to have favors like that uh, in my pocket. Some of them worked out. Some of them did.
0: Now, when you moved to L.A., you know, you're a New York kid coming to L.A., and you were doing the show Mysteries and Scandals. Mm-hmm. Now, were you excited to get... Branching hmm. to TV, I mean, because you you seem like you had uh, that you had that marriage to New York, and yeah. you had that writing. Because and you said it's so funny when you talked about walking down and seeing the papers. I still remember being a kid reading. The Philadelphia Inquirer. We always said the Philadelphia Daily News was the best because when you went to the bathroom, it was a square, so you could sit on the toilet. You have to fold it
1: up. It works better. Yeah. But I remember
0: someone had talked about like when USA, Day, USA Today came out, yeah. it was the end of getting ink on your hands. And I As know. a kid, it was great looking at the stats and coming with your sure. ink on your hands. Yeah. So what was it like when you found out? You know, you had been fired from the your job, yeah. and now you you it's have awful. an offer. You have an offer to LA. Yeah, it work. was awful. I cried. I mean, I
1: didn't. First of all, I had a wonderful, beautiful girlfriend that every guy would want, and I didn't, I knew leaving her. Look, I wasn't offered a million dollars to come to L.A. It was it was about a third of what I was making as a journalist. So it was crap money. But it's your foot in the door. But I left kicking and screaming. I didn't want to go. There were so many going away parties for me in New York. I lost count. I cried at every one of them. Uh, And I just I went and I had I I spent, you know, the actor Ed Marinaro. Yeah, remember? It, it yeah, Hill uh, Street uh,
0: Blues and what have you. And he won the uh, Heisman Trophy. Right, exactly. Cornell, exa- I think. Exactly. You know uh,
1: yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I Cornell. Think
0: Cornell. Well, one, yeah, of those, one, one of the schools. Think, yeah,
1: exactly. Anyhow, I bought a um, I bought a car from him. I bought a uh, oh god, it's escaping me now. It was a triple, Eldorado. I bought an Eldorado that he hadn't driven for years, and I bought it from him. And every four weeks, it cost me two hundred bucks to fix. But that was my convertible car in L.A. And I'd sit. I'd go to do my shoots with E. I didn't know anybody, all the kids who worked for E were 24, 25-year-old peer production assistants. They were all getting their start. And I was uh, this guy from New York, and I would sit in my car and write love letters to my wife, love letters to my family, and I'd be in tears almost every night while we did this show. And and then the little show that couldn't, I mean, we had 13 employees, we were given 13 episodes, and we were on the 13th floor. That's really, (laughs) that's how bad things look. But we started getting noticed. And we started getting write-ups. And suddenly this little show that couldn't, could. And then it became a powerhouse. Then we got 26. Then we got 50 more. And before you know we did 170-something episodes. And uh, we ran after Howard Stern. We, I mean, we were the number one show. Oh, well, Howard Stern was always number one. But a couple times we cracked it and beat him. Um, and it was phenomenal to be there. Then, then looking back then, once we were powerful, once we knew that we had a great show and people were really tuning in, uh, then I loved it But then I had
0: enough money To come back and forth to New York Every every two or three weeks Then I was okay Now that show actually was, And I, I watched it Because it was, it was cool Because yeah. it's, it's something that People are fascinated I'm one of those people that You know I know some of her books Are prefabricated The Kitty Kelly biographies Of like Sinatra You sure. read them And it's entertainment And you oh, read yeah. it. And the stories, and if it's, they're not all true, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. the stories are great. You right, know, Sinatra right. calling a girl a two-bit Shh. whore. Oh, putting yeah. Money and her yeah, thing. Yeah, And that's a mystery scandals. Was. It was it was, it was thing. <clears throat> now, did you come up with that, the tagline? Uh-huh. Now, now how did you come up with that? And then for back then, saying <clears throat> bitch wasn't a normal yeah, occurrence really on TV. Wasn't. People weren't like, it's like you couldn't say ass. Couldn't it was
1: <clears throat> They wanted it. There was a roundtable meeting, and uh, a lot of folks there were kind of scared of me because, uh, you know... I was a lot more in New York than I am now. I've been here 18 years, but I just had just gotten off the boat in New York, and uh, I frightened a lot of people. But, however, there was a kind of a movement where New York, tough guy, New Yorkers were kind of in demand. Sopranos was just starting off, and there was kind of a movement. So, anyhow, there was a, a big roundtable meeting, and they were kicking around taglines, and um, one was Hollywood, my kind of town. And I just said, well, I don't know. Why is it my kind of town? We're talking about you know, homosexuality, we're talking about death, murder, well, why is that Mike, I don't get it, you know, and then uh, you know, a, a couple of us talked about the word fame, and fame, yeah, she's a, it's a pain in the air, whatever, we, I mean, it came down to fame, ain't it a bitch, and um, it just, we all knew at that moment we had it, and then we just didn't know how much we had it, because to this day, I still get it, and I got it, I, I get it on airplanes, I, I I still get it, and now I'm getting it from a different generation of people who, <laughs> we like seven when the show first came out. Now they're twenty-something, and they're seeing it on YouTube. And if you go to YouTube, there's God, my my old shows are getting half a million hits on YouTube. It's it's unbelievable. So there's always an interest in those old celebrities. There's always an interest in Clark Gable and Vivian Vance and Fatty Arbuckle. It goes on and on. And if you if if you tend to look for those stories, it's my face, my voice, and you'll hear "Fame Ain't a Bitch." over and over again
0: now what was it like though recording them because it's a much shorter day i just said when you were a gossip columnist, you're always out you're always out and you can report on that you always have something to write about because as i said you had different stories sure. know, at that time but all of a sudden you sit there and you're doing this show and it's probably you probably recorded a few in one day or you know <clears> whatever you do what was that like for you did you did you miss that that Grind. I mean, because yeah. the thing was a grind. Yeah. This is like yeah. you go this in. was easy. You talk the stuff. I mean, did you, did you write the no, story? No, I didn't. So I you... didn't.
1: They wrote it for me. Once they got to know my voice and know the way I like to speak, then I had writer. We had two writers, uh, a couple teams. It grew into eight different teams, but initially it was two teams. Uh, there was no, nothing to do. I mean, they, they used to get upset. Can you work two nights this week? I'm like, yeah. I mean, when I worked at the, at the paper, I'd get up at seven and I'd work until six to put the paper to bed and then. Go home and shower and go out again until four o'clock in the morning. It was a constant grind. You can't do that job for more than four, five or six years. But this was uh, easy. I mean, I got up. They gave me the script. I looked it over and I showed up at night when they were setting up. And I said my lines and I did my thing and uh, it was easy. We did we did uh, sometimes two or three a week. Uh, toward the end, look the first couple of the first couple of shows, the first handful of shows took a day or two to complete. By the time we were past episode 80 or 90, it was like we could knock out a show in four hours. By the last 30, we could knock out a show in two hours. We got so good at it that we knew how to do it, how to cut corners. But yeah, it was a lot of downtime for me, and uh, you know, downtime is uh, <clears throat> downtime's dangerous. Downtime is drinking. Downtime is girls.
0: Downtime is drugs. Uh, it's a typical story in Hollywood. I went through those avenues as well. So what was it like to also being noticed in New York and being a gossip columnist in New York, and now it's a it's a different animal mm-hmm. in, in LA you're a TV host you're oh. a celebrity so there, it's a big difference in in New York people want to meet you they want right. to kiss you. but in LA everyone wants to kiss your ass oh, so they're yeah. not they're not watching your P's and Q's saying oh you know I can't drink this extra shot of you know right whatever right. And, and get crazy because right. AJ might put it on you know whatever yeah, yeah. how was it for you and did you see a lot of phoniness yes. Well, yeah, I saw a lot of phoniness.
1: of course, I did, but you know there's a lot of uh there was a lot of people who <clears throat> approached me, look, here's the bottom line: I-, I didn't get any better looking or funnier on that airplane ride from New York to l a, but suddenly, I had a lot more people wanting to be close to me and next to me and-, and and hanging out with me or coming home with me. That's just what it is to have a TV show in this town, and I mean, I was on e. Uh, you know, this is before the Kardashians. This is E was fledgling. So the fact that uh, I was popular enough to attract some 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 really beautiful people to hang out with me just goes to show you the power of television. You know, when you're on the movie screen, unless you're a huge star, when you're on a movie screen, you're, you're generally looked at as so big that people find it hard to approach you. When you're on a TV show that runs every night and you're in people's bedrooms, they really feel like they can talk to you and they know you and they did. And people would approach me uh, and I I actually liked it. Look, I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a, of a narcissist. I think anybody who who wants to make it in this town is to an extent. Uh, I don't like to watch my shows after they're done, but I certainly liked the attention I got from, from the female side of things that, that, that was a, that was a high. I enjoyed, but yeah, people weren't worried about how much they're drinking around me or what they said around me. But then I also had to contend with a large crowd in this town, many of whom I busted when I was a columnist in New York because my column also dealt with the things that happened in Hollywood, even though I was based in New York. So I met up with a lot of people that I kind of... Matter of fact, you mentioned, did I have any beefs? I had a beef with Sean Penn. Sean Penn did not approve of things I wrote about him and Madonna. There was a famous story that I wrote that Sean Penn uh, was going to go out one night when he was married to Madonna. She didn't want him to go out. And, uh he's not one to accept those kind of deals. So he, one particular night he tied her up with rope on a chair. He threw paint on her and opened up a bunch of pillows and feathered her. Okay. And left her tied to a chair with paint and feathers on. Uh, and it's a true story. I know it's true. And, and he didn't like that. I wrote it. He didn't dispute it. He just met me in LA and didn't like that. I wrote it. He never said it isn't true, but, uh, he took a different tact. He said, "You're you're better than that." I always I've seen you write because I used to write for Playboy and different man. I see I've seen what you've written, what you how you write. You're a better writer. You don't need to do this crap. Why did you do that? And I said, "I don't know." There's a, everybody needs an opening, man. And that was my opening, you know. And uh, we ended up uh, breaking bread that night and getting drunk and and it 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 it, it 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 turned into a bit of a friendship, but a Hollywood friendship, you right. know. If I see Sean across the room, I could wink and we can talk, but isn't like the, I don't hang out with the guy but it, it's a Hollywood friendship if you will so I like things like that it's fun to be friends with George Clooney you know for for a few months of your life I've gotten over that but initially that was cool that was cool to introduce a chick to George Clooney and you know it goes it goes, it went a long way it sounds very superficial but there is a lot of that in this town and I'm not ashamed to say that I indulged in it uh I look back and and, and get embarrassed about some of it but Hey man that's hollywood it, it, you know it just it, it's never going to end it, it's just never going to end
0: why did the show go off the air
1: mysteries and scandals yeah. we did a lot of episodes we were running out of episodes but here's what really happened uh for years they were they asked me what do you want to do next and i said even before at mysteries and scandals i had the ear of an executive i said i want my own talk show i can be a talk show host I i watched merv griffin as a kid I just got Dick Cavett's book last night from Amazon Brief Encounters. I loved those guys. I wanted to be a talk show host. And I had a great idea about doing it in New York. And I, gosh, I went after there for years. And finally, an executive named John Riber, after Mysteries and Scandals was such a hit and I had such a high profile, he said, okay, I mean, I, I had such a profile where. Saturday Night Live put me on the show with that Jerry Seinfeld hosted and David Bowie performed their 25th anniversary show. They had me on to say "Fame Man and a Bitch" and two skits. Uh, the Sopranos put me on the show. I mean, it was it was getting to be the the the, um, the Simpsons, the Family Guy did an episode where they used me. It was, it was getting to be insane. So he said, "Yeah, it's time for a talk show for you." So we did it. We shot it in New York. It was a live audience. It was, uh, we had a ball. All my friends put it together. I had all my family and friends working on the payroll, my dream job. This is before Jimmy Kimmel. There was alcohol in the audience. We were kind of ahead of our time in that respect. And then a new executive came to E! named Mindy Herman, who had just come from a, couple of, a network where a couple of talk shows failed and she hated talk shows. So she inherited mine. And she put on a good face and a good front in all the articles. But as soon as the fourth episode airs, she said, uh, we're getting rid of the talk show. And it it destroyed me. And I said to my gang who worked on Mysteries and Scandals, I said, get ready. They canceled my talk show, which means I can't go home to New York. They they know that they poked the tiger and I'm going to get mad. And they're going to cancel Mysteries and Scandals now. And you're all going to lose your jobs except me. Because I was in the contract. Sure enough, a few weeks later, it's exactly what happened. They, uh, but I had my crew ready. There's an ad, there's a there's a great producer named Allison Martino. Her dad was Al Martino, famous right. singer in The Godfather. Marlon Brando smacks him. Uh, and I said, Allison, when they they always do a fake fire drill when they want to fire people because they want to take all the stuff that you have in your office and before you they before you can't get back in. It's so bad. I said, make sure we steal all the master tapes of all our episodes because it's going to be they're going to he, he's going to get rid of them, but we need that stuff. Allison and a couple of chicks that worked for me did all this groundwork. They took all the tapes. We had all the masters. They all lost their jobs. <clears throat> I kept mine for another year. I was under contract. I got paid to do nothing. So wait, so you so you, you just you weren't hosting your show, you just They you... they kept running mysteries and scandals. They cancelled my talk show. They had to pay me a lot of money. Were you allowed in the building at all? Or... Oh yeah. Were, yeah, were, yeah just... I was, but I had no I had no reason to go there. Okay. But I was under contract. I couldn't tell the world what happened. I was a six figure contractor, just keep my mouth shut. And I did. And instead of looking for work during this time, I just kept collecting checks and having a good time. But that's another story. Anyhow, E! was going under an identity crisis. Uh, It was a different time. Reality television started to just explode. Ryan Seacrest became huge. It became hosts, became thin guys that had spiky hair with blonde tips and guys who had bodies that were a 38 regular. You know, I was a 44. It it, it, was it changes every several years now it's almost back to being a regular guy again you can be a regular guy with a tv show but back in 90 or back in 2000 it was a different different sort of sort of host it was a comedian based host people who were good at improv people who were good at, were in the groundlings uh and there was plenty of those guys like the tosh Point. those kind of guys got gigs my kind of guys didn't get gigs so that was it for me uh, and I hung around and banged around and then I started doing then then I got a call to do a, a poker show with Gabe Kaplan Cole High Stakes Poker on the Game Show Network. I really had no idea. I don't I don't play poker, but my manager called me and said there was a breakdown where the, the Game Show Network is asking for uh an AJ Benza type to host a poker show. And I said if I don't get this job, um, i I got to quit <laughs> and you're you're fired. So I get the interview and they all thought I oh, we didn't know you were here in town. People still think I'm not in town. They think they hear this accent. They think I live in New York. So I got the gig. Me and Gabe Kaplan did uh, high-stakes poker for the Game Show Network for five years. It
0: was number one every year. And then that got canceled because that's just television. Well, what was it like working? I mean, it's such a different median because you're doing poker. And and once again, but the poker was such poker it was, time, it was it was it, it a was, huge it was, back then. It, was, it was it was like where the poker stars were rock stars oh yeah I yeah mean, they those were. guys you know i mean i i know the names i can't think of them but daniel
1: were, legrano yeah Eli those Sama, guys, they, they were huge they were guys giant yeah. And, yeah and
0: everyone and it was on espn i mean you know right. when i started watching espn as a kid i mean when it came on i never thought you'd sit there world and see series of poker, poker could you imagine and Yeah, and espn too and it, it wasn't like it was like at three in the morning I mean, when you usually have horse racing it was like prime time time poker wait i'm watching i want to find baseball poker poker so what was that life like because first of all it's so different for you because you're you're commentating on poker yeah when you're used to commentating doing the i mean what was it like well what you get used to uh, what uh,
1: i i don't like i don't like poker i don't play poker but you know it's a it's a paycheck and you got you got to get back in the game you got to stay in the picture you got to stay on television you got to be recognized again uh it's a commodity you've got to show so so I grabbed the show, not knowing anything about poker, and Gabe Kaplan quickly understood that after about the first minute of us working together. And then we made it work. I, I kind of—he treated me like the the guy, like the, I acted like the guy at home who didn't know all the outs and the percentages, because a lot of people don't. They pretend they do, but they don't. And we we we, we made that work. Gabe is an old Jewish guy from 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 Brooklyn. Um, the Italian from Brooklyn were very similar, and that worked, and the shtick we had worked. So uh, I just did it. The paycheck was tremendous, and it was great to get back in the game. And then, sure enough, 2008 comes along, and a new executive comes onto GSN, and they want to change that show. They want to maybe put a girl host. They, it was just ridiculous. So they got rid of me. Then they got rid of Gabe. Then they put Norm MacDonald in there. They got rid of Norm MacDonald. And the show got canceled. Now, believe it or not, next month, we're doing it again. It's not going to be called high stakes poker, but it's the same people behind it. Not Game Show Network, but uh, it, there's a poker. There's going to be a, there's a 24 hour poker channel that's going to be on NBC SE. It's also on something called Twitch, which is like a streaming service. So in that respect, poker's back. I'm going to be calling poker again, flop, river, turn, doing play by play with a guy named Nick Shulman who's won a bunch of millions doing it. And so, so I'm back in it. I don't really. I still don't know enough about it to care about it. But I've got a wife and kids now, and in addition to everything else I'm doing, it's a decent paycheck, man, and it's fun. It's easy work. You can't say no to something where you go to work and you work for a few hours and they throw you several several thousand dollars. It's hard to say no to that because you know. uh, At least I do. I know what it's like to not have work and remember what it was like to get those checks. So I don't tend to turn things down unless it's really something I'm just disgusted by but I'm not disgusted by poker I just don't play it now did you write a letter to uh, the game
0: show Network oh when, yeah man now what, what, was that just an open letter or what
1: well I, I posted it on my, my blog spot at that point I, I, I went against what a lot of people thought I should have done because uh, basically when you're fired you're supposed to take it like a man and but these people were not giving me any good reason they did they did something I call fingerprints a new executive comes in he's given a number one show. And instead of writing it out and and loving it, he wants to put his fingerprints on it by changing something. We talked about pizza earlier. Listen, if you're selling great pizza with pepperoni on it, why introduce a, a pie with pineapple or watermelon and try and put that in the front of your window? Why do it? Why mess with it? This guy messed with it. I told him you're making a big mistake. Nobody cares about a girl walking around the poker room. They don't care about that. These guys care about the poker game, and the audience cares about me and Gabe's stick because I'm the guy that goes out at night and hears people talk to me in Vegas or New York or LA. That's what they dig. You're an executive. You don't hear crap. You look at ratings and our ratings are number one. Anyhow, I wrote a letter saying that if you, you know, it was a bad time. Money was low. And I said, you know, if you do this, you know, uh, the economy was about to tank 2008, 2009. I said, you're really going to hurt me. You're going to hurt a family of, uh, of three or four people that I, you know, I wish you'd reconsider this and I, And I don't care how it made me look. I wanted people to know that uh, they made a bad decision. And I'm very happy to report that when they did get rid of me, the show didn't last less than a year before it went down the toilet and tanked. And that executive was given the front given the back door as well. So, you know, sometimes I keep my mouth shut, but sometimes I well, oftentimes I open it. And uh, I thought that was the right thing to do at that point because I really felt, look, the alternative was punch the guy in the mouth and you can't do that. But he was taking money away from my family. So a letter, if that bugged anybody, I really don't care. Well, no, no. When, after you, you went, you did Celebrity Fit Club. Oh, yeah. Because, again, again. and i they not, offer, I'm not, you, not, offer you a lot of money? Lot, again, nothing I ever thought I'd do. But you met with the with the, with the reality of you've got another kid. And the money you, you made, you didn't save. You didn't invest right. You just had a good, fun time with it. You took care of people. You want to love the world wasn't smart with it so what happens you're 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 getting the the money's getting down the till's getting empty and suddenly they oh look i was off for dancing with the stars the first year it came out and we ran everybody ran away from that show because it destroyed whatever career you had now it regenerates and makes careers so you were offered to be a dancer yeah but i I can't dance I, i dance as well as i play poker but the thought of dancing was so horrifyingly embarrassing to me I would look if they said, uh, you know, uh, playing with the pros, go play with the Yankees. That hey, I'll sign me up. But dancing with, I could. So anyhow, the point is they were offering these reality shows to you. It's such big fees. You know, ten weeks of work to work. Ten weeks where you work two days a week, from three o'clock in the morning to three o'clock in the morning. Twelve hours, you know, twelve-hour day shifts. I'm sorry, you're basically there all day, two days a week, in, in barracks in Simi Valley up in the mountains where it's 20 degrees at night and 90 degrees during the day. And it was a weight loss show. But you know, $100,000 for, for, for eight weeks. And you're looking at your wife and you, your your daughter and your little baby. What are you supposed to do, say no? Right. You take it and you go, listen, I'm smart enough that whatever happens with this show, I'll spin an opportunity for myself. America will see the real me. There'll be other opportunities, other other chances. And I took money, and I did it. And I actually formed great friendships. I, well, I lost 16 pounds, but I, I met, and I'm still very good friends with, Willie Ames from Eight is Enough and Charles and Charles. What a wonderful guy. He was on the bottom of his heels. He, life had just destroyed this guy. And I'm ha- happy to report Willie is just married and wonderful and working again in television and films. There's a lot of Christian books, doesn't he? He did for a while. He did actually did a Christian TV show, um... I forget what it was, some sort of some sort of morning show. Uh, yeah, like a courageous, like kind of like a Christian heroes. I didn't know that was Willie's thing, but Willie's really good. But 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 life had thrown him some horrible horrible curveballs. And uh, when we met, look, Dustin Diamond was on that episode that show. Shriek was on. They, they tried to get me and Shriek to go to get head to head, but. I didn't bite. I didn't how, want to f- how do they do that? Like do they say they, that? They, they, the producers know. They produce. They produce drama. They don't just produce a TV. They figure if we put AJ Benz in the same room with Screech, eventually he's gonna get so nuts, he's gonna punch the guy in the face. But I was too smart for that. And I had a, I had my wife telling me, Don't don't fall for this bait. They're trying to get you to go. Brian Dunkleman was on, the guy who started American Idol is with Brian Seacrest, right? I love Brian. And you you know, you start to find out, yeah, we're 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 temperamental people, but there's a good side to us. So It didn't. It didn't become the show they wanted. No one came to blows. There was a lot of arguments, but uh, we all lost weight. We all made a lot of money, and we formed some friendships. And uh, that money came in handy. You know, it came in handy. So I'm happy to report that you know uh, things are great now. But this town, once you're out here and you find yourself making money as a host or whatever it is you want to call yourself, and it dries up, what are you supposed to do? Go back to
0: school. Well, it's good you get those opportunities too. Like you yeah. also did the uh, Give Me the Reality Show.
1: Yeah, that I, well, I walked away from that. I did what? it, but I realized a couple of shows in this was not for me, and Why I not? Left. Just it, that it was just, and you know, I again, I love, I love, I met Cato Kalin. I I knew Cato for years. Cato kalen's great. he oh, he's, should he's have been, his own TV he's show. He's on the show he, twice. I, I love great He's a great wonderful. guy. I love Tracy Bingham. She's out of her mind, but I love her. I met some great Gretchen Bonaducci. You know, fun people, but we all kind of get this industry. We understand what happens when you're here and things dry up. And you've got to figure out a life for yourself as you're in a free fall. So uh, the executives had this idea for Give Me My Own Reality Show. And I think I could have won that, 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 that challenge, which would have been to have cameras on your family for whatever, 10 weeks and have your own show and get a decent contract. But about three weeks in, I said, I don't like the way they're, they're doing this. It's kind of... I don't, It just, it doesn't look real. It looks ridiculous. And and frankly, I said to my wife, I don't want my kids to have a backpack, a sound pack in their back pocket while they're talking to me or going to bed. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to win this thing. I don't want to live that life. Even for 10 weeks, every marriage that gets on a reality show eventually breaks up. Marriage is hard enough to begin with. Why put ourselves through a reality show? So I walked, I, I quit on air. I quit on air. I, I didn't make a scene. I just said, this isn't for me. It's not what I thought I'd want. I don't want it. And I actually got a lot of good responses from people when they when they saw that. Well, now, through all this time, you continued writing. Yeah, I did. I did continue writing. I did put together screenplays. I saw some screenplays that never got made, but I was paid nonetheless. So there was always a little stream of income coming in. Um, but I knew I had a couple of big things up my sleeve. And uh, one of which was, was, uh, was the book, 74 and Sunny, which just came out in, in July. It's something that took a few years to materialize. But... You know, I didn't write the book to to make millions. You, you don't make, unless you're you know, one of uh, 50 authors, you know, this you don't make you don't write books to make millions. You write you write books because there's a story you've got to get out of your system and maybe one day it's good enough for a movie and that that'd be fantastic. So that's 70, 74 and Sunny was something I wrote because I felt that it had to come out of my body. It was cathartic and I and and I really felt like it, it, it my father was such a wonderful character. And my parents, I was brought up, uh, brought up by wonderful people. And I had a crazy family and a crazy background. And I, and I felt like we deserved to be immortalized. If, uh, maybe not, not me, because I was a kid. But the people who brought me up, I felt deserved to be remembered forever in some capacity. So that's why that book was written. And I, and I feel very strongly about it. And it's doing very well. And it's in the hands of a, a couple of big-name producers who, who are thinking of optioning it. So uh, on that level, I'm very happy about that.
0: Now, now, what is it like writing that kind of book when, as you say, in the past, your writing was, you know, well, in the beginning, journalism, but then gossip, and you're talking <clears> still, it's it's like anything, you know, a blog, You a blog's one page, you can write that, you know, yeah. I'm working on a short storybook, you know, but, mm-hmm. I mean, that's easy, you, you have 10 chapters of yeah. 12 sort of yeah. things. When you're actually writing a book, and with, with the kind of writing, even though you have a journalism background, journalism and, and writing a novel is a lot different. Very different.
1: Uh, very different but i i i can write any type of writing i my you know screenplay i can you know listen i've written for the new york times and playboy i've written for i've written screenplays i've written tv shows writing is writing it's discipline it, it really is you know it's the kind of thing that makes your ass sweat i mean it's it's hard work but it is a gift you know i don't think you i really don't believe you can go to a a school and take a course and how to be a great writer. I think it's a gift. And in that capacity, sometimes it feels like a curse because I know that's the best thing I do. Standing in front of a camera and, and, and reading a line or having fun, that's a great payday. But that's not the gift I was given. The gift I was given was that I can write. I can I can tell a story. So it doesn't mean it's easy. It just means that's my gift. So the first book I wrote, Fame Ain't a the Bitch, was really just about my my growing up in new york and and my gossip columnist days and harvey weinstein gave me that book deal when i was fired from the news he gave me a book deal he gave me 50 grand to write a book with on a handshake and it developed into a a book but really it wasn't a book that i'm going to look back on and be proud of it documented the craziness of my life back then i mean i look back on what i wrote and i get a little like oh my god i can't believe i said that what an idiot but that's who i was back then 74 and sunny is completely different. It, it was it was very cathartic. As a matter of fact, you know, my father was a very tough Sicilian man who was soft too. But man, was he tough! He never hit us. He wasn't that kind of guy. Tough Sicilian guy, ex cop, World War II enlisted in the I enlisted in the service the day after Pearl Harbor with his two brothers. Tough, tough guy. But there was a side of him that was so soft and sweet, and a, a side of him that demanded justice and wouldn't take crap that I, I had to get in there and investigate that further, because he died when I was 21. So now I'm writing this book at the same age my father was when he had me. And I have my little son Rocco and my little daughter Roxy. And when I wrote this book about the summer of 74, as I'm writing this, I'm the same age as my dad. And I'm starting to see what it's like to raise a family and how difficult it is. And while my father... Had, you know, his brother was a very successful doctor who would give us money at times when, when my father's salary wasn't cutting the mustard. Uh, you know, he, we're very lucky now, guys. Uh, anybody, we're all lucky. We can we can we can we can go on Facebook and chat with people, and there's groups and there's people you can sit down with to get over rough times. The men back in those days didn't have anything like that. They had to go to work every day and just get stuff done and face the music. And I really had a tough time in the beginning of this book outlining the kind of man my father was. And I'd go home every day and I really, unfortunately, I'm going to tell you, I, I mimic, you know, method acting is one thing. This was method writing. My father was an alcoholic, but I don't want to give you the bad idea. He he would have two drinks at home when he got home, and then he would fall asleep. But he would yell at a few things that pissed him off. He wasn't a fighter, but he he drank two drinks, then he passed out. So he wasn't a 10-drink guy. He never went to a bar. However, I got into the habit of coming home from work. Um, I was, I'm still producing this movie, and I would leave the production facility, come home, bang a few scotches back, chase it with a beer, and start writing about my dad. And I mean, <laughs> my kids didn't want to come into the bedroom because, it, you know, in, in trying to get my father out, it was a tough, it was tough, and it was very cathartic. But there were moments and days and weeks where I was not easy to be around. And I know I've heard, we've all heard these stories from actors who say, oh, my wife put up with me while I, you know, I hate to say it. It is, it, it was true for me too. I was not easy to be around on my marriage suffered from it. Definitely. Um, I was an asshole, um, very difficult guy, but having gotten him on the page and gotten past uh, a crucial point in the book, my mood lightened and, and then the book became a joy to write. But early on, I was in therapy <laughs> as I was writing it. And then going home to write to face the music and, uh, and dealing with a wife who wasn't happy and kids who were kind of not sure, uh, it was tough, but it was absolutely all worth it.
0: Well, I think also what makes it harder is when you write something like that, as you said, it's not like now, like cause we're in the social media thing. Like if you want, like my father was in World War II yeah. and he passed uh, two years ago mm. and, um, you know, we knew him, but he, he was quiet. He yeah. never really talked. And, you know, we see the pictures of the World War II, you know, and I the the hat and it's great the, stuff, stuff. It's cool. and the thing is you really can't find out that kind of stuff because one most of the people that were around my father's world war II, so our fathers probably same the same thing. Age. yeah most of those people that were around then aren't around anymore and if they are it's like my mom has Alzheimer's yeah, so you can't really talk right, to them because exactly. they remember but they don't remember <clears throat> and I think it must be hard to sit there and just do the research too because it's not like now it's like when you die you know, people can go to your oh, Wikipedia page, it's no, it's they can all no this. But then you don't you don't find out. And you're right. Back then, men, at least my family, men, they didn't talk. They uh, they, they they were it was the strong that's my silent point. type. It's that's like you my sat point. there right and you knew same my, my dad never hit me, but you know if you screwed up, you were grounded, you know, yeah, you you I, knew I, you wanted to make them proud. Right. And so to sit there and try to find that information
1: yeah wha- and just yeah. because
0: you and you do have a background in journalism where you investigate, it must be hard because when you sit there and you're trying to investigate but there's not. It's there's like, the,
1: I meant there was a bunch of walls up. Well, right.
0: more more than
1: investigate what I happen to have. Again, this goes back to having a gift or whatever. I'm the guy that always remembered the story. I'm the guy in the group, like in the movie Stand By Me. You know, I'm the kid that remembered the story of the dead body in the woods. I'm that guy. Uh, I still have friends from kindergarten that we've that I, I talk to to this day. You know, friends that I've had for almost 50 years. That we all tell these stories like they were yesterday they're so vivid but the sad thing is you get to a certain point my dad died in 85 and you start to you really start to forget significant things and insignificant things about a father and that starts to get scary and I didn't like not having things down on paper uh you know I mean I have little notes here and there but I just felt like Right now it may seem inconsequential if you forget that if your father liked bacon or if he liked broccoli or whatever the hell it is. You get to a point where all that stuff's gonna be gone. The recipes that nobody wrote down, you know, what do you what do we do? We're gonna be we're gonna be worse as a society if we don't put that stuff down. So for my family at least, that was one particular summer that that, that pertained to one story about kind of trying to rescue my my little cousin who who his father, my father's brother, perceived to be gay, and they didn't know how to approach it. And he he asked my father, could you take my son for the summer to try to butch him up, to fix him, be a boy. And it sounds ridiculous now, but in 1974, that was that's the way the discussions went. And we took him into the family thinking, my father probably thought he could fix him. And after a few weeks, he understood this is not fixable. And in his own inimitable style and way, He accepted this. I don't want to put this in a bad way, but it was like we were given a it was like a grenade was dropped in his lap. Now, how does my tough Italian Archie Bunker type father help this little gay kid? Because there's bullying now in the neighborhood and the bullying is being directed at his nephew. uh, And that's his blood. And my father may not have agreed, with the homosexual lifestyle and and who the hell remembers? I never talked to him about that stuff back in in the 70s, but he handled it with a plum with this with my cousin and it all worked out amazing to the point where we were the people who did the changing my little cousin didn't change he is who he is he's a very happy successful homosexual man now married back then he was a very confused little boy so my father made us change and adapt to this kid and that's why the book is so special uh because it it just shows me that I was brought up around an amazing group of people. And my family is not alone. My God, there's millions of families who would have handled it the same way. Unfortunately, there are families who wouldn't have even accepted that and wouldn't have wanted the kid to come over. You know? Uh, My family had an open-door policy. Everybody was allowed in the house. Uh, Everybody was allowed to say whatever you wanted to say at the dining room table. Things got solved in my house. So I'm, I'm so proud. I don't care if only one more book is sold. What matters to me is I can look at my room and see that book and see pictures of my father and me uh, and re- re- go to those stories, go to those chapters and read the stories. And I know whatever happens, if Putin launches a missile at us or, or North or Korea gets berserk, it's, it's, it's documented. It'll be on a shelf somewhere or it's up in the clouds that the Benzes lived in a certain era during a certain age. And my family did a certain thing that was wonderful for a certain boy. Uh, and that's what I wanted to capture, and I wanted to always remember. And now I always will.
0: Now, what is it like when you write a book like this? okay? and it's it's a very personal part, and it's a memoir. Mm-hmm. and you write it and you're someone who's come from the background of you know, breaking stories, you know like this and that. And so you write this book a different kind of writing for you, mm-hmm. and then you actually release it and you're a tough guy, you know you you're you know you're the Italian, you're like you know sure. like we don't, so now, what do you do when you, are you nervous when you first see what critics are going to say? Because it's got to be a big thing because it's not like your other kind of writing. This yeah. is, this is part of you. This is, as you say, your baby, you know, mm-hmm. you, yeah. and, and you went through yeah. a lot of shit doing it. You went through, you know, with your the, the drinking and everything. therapy. Oh, yeah. You went through it. So what is it like when you, first of all, when you get it finished, congratulations. Not to, mention, a- not
1: to mention, I got no, it went around for a year and every publishing house in America said no. Okay. So that destroyed me Do
0: you know why or was it just
1: No there's all different reasons they give And frankly you'll you go crazy trying to figure it out But for some reason And this is why you know the universe works in a certain a certain way uh, A woman at Simon & Schuster Happened to be away Because her mother had passed So when the book made its pass through her office She didn't see it But when my, my, my agent Who happens to be gay and Italian So he really championed this book uh, He sent it through again and this time, this woman was there at Simon Schuster, and she said, I love this story. And they bought it. Um, so, no, but I, I'm not afraid to face any critic. Thank God, so far, Knockwood, not one person or one uh, reviewer has had anything nasty to say about it. I mean, I, what can you say nasty about it? But I'm ready to face people head on. But at this stage of my life, I'm 53. I've done everything I wanted to do. It, it, it really won't affect me. I'm not a hothead anymore. I mean, I can be. But if you don't like my book, there's something wrong with you. If you didn't like Fame Man and the Bitch because you found, like, I I I walked around like an asshole and I was a narcissist, sure, you're you're right. I was, and I get why you wouldn't have liked me. But the people who read 74 and Sunny, that's a whole different side of me and a side of my family that's a wonderful group of people. I'm not concerned what they think. I really am not at
0: all concerned. That's good. We have a few minutes left. Sure. Uh, so what else is coming up? What, what, what else you got? Well, in I, just, jacket?
1: I just produced a movie that's really sweet. Talk about another side of me. You know, we I, me and a few a few fellows bought the rights to a book called called uh, So Be It. It's a wonderful children's book that's been out about 10 years by Sarah Weeks. Great book. We bought the rights. We started raising money on it alone. We We raised $5 million alone. Uh, we hired Stephen Gyllenhaal, Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal's dad, to direct it. We've got a, a number of stars in Alfre Woodard, uh, John Hurt, Cloris Leachman, Talitha Bateman. Great, great, great people. We finished shooting it. Now we're in post-production. We're going to go to Sundance with it in January. It'll hit theaters next summer. But this is a sweet story about a little girl who's trying to find her true identity. So uh, that seems to be my groove right now. After this movie, we're going to do another movie in the same vein. So... Uh, At this stage in life, I'm happy to say that I have no – oh, and I'm also going (laughs) to – see, life goes around again. I'm also going to be doing a TV show for the Reels Channel, uh, another show in the vein of a Mysteries and Scandals type show, another Hollywood retread of a show that I did in the 90s for E! There's no title yet, but I will be hosting, and it'll be on the Reels Channel, and you'll know about that – Anybody who knows my Facebook page knows that uh, I, I tend to talk a lot about what I've got going on. So it'll be out there as soon as, as soon as I know more. The meeting is Thursday, but uh, it'll be it'll be another show about celebrities and scandals
0: and mysteries and that sort of thing. So you're getting back to that. old yeah. Now, now, do you do any do you do any uh, just freelance? Like, do you write a blog every day or do you do anything like that or just? You...
1: No, I don't, because there's just so many voices. I feel like it's I feel like it's worthless. You know, I feel like you're writing for I don't know who. I like I like Facebook I really don't like Twitter I don't get it I don't feel the I don't feel the power of it and I'm not a celebrity where I have a hundred thousand people following me so to me you write something and it disappears it's like throwing a piece of candy off a cliff I don't there's no joy in it for me but uh, I no there's nothing like writing for a select group of people and unfortunately that's dead uh, the newspaper business is dead a blog to me I don't feel the same kind of uh, happiness with so I'll write more books, I'll produce more movies, and I'll do a TV show now and then, and I'll get, in, I get in my head in the acting game now that I've, I'm done producing this film. I'm going to stick in that medium. Uh, I'm happy. My kids are happy. I coach my son's uh, baseball, soccer, and basketball teams. So, you know, it's a, there's a lot of sides to me, and this side is a very comfortable, happy side. I'm not, a, I'm not nuts anymore like I used to be. I'm a lot calmer now. Now, where can people find the book? The book is everywhere, but if you go to—I mean, it's on Amazon, I at Barnes and Noble. But basically, I would go to Amazon. It's 74 and sunny. Uh, it really is everywhere. It's still among the top uh, among the top 10 books <clears throat> that are that are uh, under the what they say uh, uh, extended family. Uh, who knows? There's all these different levels of books, but this is considered a family book. It's not a it's self-help. It's under book.
0: parenting and relationships. It, it is. It is
1: too. Look, it's just a good book. If you grew up in a family. If you grew up in an Italian family, you'll really love it. But just a family in general, if you want to remember your mom and dad, if you grew up in Long Island, New York, hey, man, if you've got a heart, you'll like the book. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, oh, man. Oh, thank
0: you, bro. So, a pleasure. So, uh, so wait, so the Facebook is... Now...
1: Facebook is just AJ Benza. Twitter is real AJ Benza. But you don't tweet a lot. I, I don't tweet a lot. I've got about 100 people who follow me. But I got a feeling now, when the movie starts to get noticed in Sundance, I'll be tweeting more. Right now, I just tweet when things bug me. I tweeted last night that I hated... Fashion Police on E. I think they should just, just, just dump it. After John Rivers died, that show should be off the air. So I, I kind of have these little fits of, uh, of uh, Tourette's where I've got to say something, but it's not for masses of people. It's not for the great state city of New York anymore. It's for the hundred dopey people who follow me. But maybe one day there'll be a hundred thousand people who follow me. Then I might
0: feel more, more positive about what I write. All right. Great. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, people follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. And just during the uh... During the debates, I really tweet my ass off. Oh, yeah. I have some good uh, material there because you know I keep it light, I keep it humorous, I don't get too political. I just I just write jokes. And I also go to my website, coopertalk.net. There's over 420 episodes up there where you can email me, cooper, coopertalk.net. I will get back to you. You know I always like to get back to you. And also go to my other website, stopassault.com. Remember when I had that heart problem? Well, I changed my diet. I wrote a cookbook. It's easy. 120 recipes. Cool. Easy to easy to learn. Easy to cook. No pictures, you're not intimidated by that. You can get it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or go to StopTheSalt.com and buy it from me because that way I make more money. <laughs> That's all i and I'll sign it for you. So check out ATA Benson. Check out 74 and Sunny on Amazon. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I will talk to you guys next week.